In honor of Mother's Day, we're going to talk about war. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's really what we're doing. It's in Genesis 14. You can open there. Jesus, I thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for mothers who have nurtured and loved and fought for sons and daughters. I thank you how many of us in this room are the product of a persistent mother. I pray, Lord, that you would reward them good measure, pressed down, running over. I pray that today they would know that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, that they have a great influence. And I pray that you would increase it, give them patience and perseverance and laughter and joy in the midst of it. I pray as we study the life of Abram, this man of faith who gives us the practical walking out of what it means to be a people of faith, followers of you, I pray you'd give us wisdom, intrigue us, entice us, Lord, correct us where we need to be corrected, Lord. May our thinking be shaped by scripture. May we be renewed. May we understand the way that you work and may that give us hope no matter what our circumstances are. So speak to us, I pray. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we'll be in Genesis 14. You can turn there. Um, on Wednesday, we had the soccer shuffle. So I had Myron at home just my, by myself. Myron is my three-year-old son. And we're sitting kind of there. I'm sitting actually, and he was standing on this little retaining wall. And he's kind of looking down at me a little bit. And he said, Dad? I said, yeah. He said, I'm going to get big. I said, yeah, you are going to get big. And then in order to really show me, there's another like 18-inch tall post. He climbed up on the post and then looked down at me. He goes, Dad, I'm going to be bigger than you. I said, you're probably right because science says that I'm actually shrinking right now. So you're getting bigger and I'm shrinking. So I said, so, bud, when you get big, what do you want to do? Probably, he says probably a lot. It's like his vocab word right now. Probably drive you and mom around. <laughs> I think that's what he thinks our job is. Like your job is driving people around. Okay. So, all right. All right. Okay. All right. I said, well, that's awesome. He says, Yeah. But dad, you're going to have to get buckled in a kid's seat. <laughs> I said, you know, I may shrink that small, so maybe I will need to be in a car seat at that point. I don't know. All right. And then he said, and maybe, maybe I'll bring Poppy too. Poppy is his grandpa. Maybe I'll bring Poppy with me. I said, why do you need Poppy to go with you? Because he's going to put on your shoes and socks. I'm like, why can't you put on my shoes and socks? Nope. Poppy's going to do it. <laughs> I heard that, and I thought, that is an interesting perspective of what it means to grow up and mature. I'm going to drive you around, I'm going to bring my grandpa, and he's going to put on your shoes and socks, and you're going to be in a car seat. Probably not actually how it's going to look, right? If it does look like that, well, pray for me. I think often, in our pursuit of Jesus, when we become followers of Jesus, we have this idea, kind of like Myron, of what it's going to look like. And then as we begin to walk it out, 
it goes in the very opposite direction. So Abram is this practical example, I think, of the faith walk. So we saw in chapter 12, Abram obeys God at a level of faith that few of us will ever have to do. Leave your country, leave your kindred, leave economy, leave safety, leave culture, leave everything and go somewhere that you have no idea where it's at, right? Abram obeys. And while he's there, a famine hits. So you can be in the right spot, completely obedient to Jesus, and still hard things will happen to you. That's Genesis 12. Then Genesis 13, we saw Abram has to make a really hard decision about who he's going to hang with because his interaction with Lot was leading to strife and contention and problems. So he has to separate himself from Lot. I can't hang with you anymore. And sometimes in the Christian walk, we want to take everyone with us, but there are times where we say, bro, I can't hang with you anymore. I love you. I'll be involved with you. I'll pray for you. But the way that we used to hang and the friendship that we used to have, it doesn't work anymore because I don't do that stuff. And sometimes there has to be separations. Well, we left Abram in, on Wednesday night in chapter 13. And after that separation, he has shalom. Like it is peace. It's awesome. Woo, he's settled. He's called upon the name of the Lord. It's epic. And then chapter 14 is war. I think that's what happens a lot. That it can seem like finally I've got peace. Finally, I've got shalom. And then it's war. But notice before we even jump in, it's not Abraham's, Abram's fault that it's war. It's his nephew Lot. His nephew Lot sucks him into this conflict. And so often when I talk with people, it's not their sin that they're warring against. It's their son or their daughter or their nephew or their spouse has drugged them into something. And as a believer, that happens. Sometimes we get sucked in to bad stuff because of family and problems. So how do you walk that out? So we see in this chapter really two guys, Lot and Abe. Lot, he's stuck in the fog of war. He's blinded by it. He's sucked into it. He's taken captive to it. Abe fights the war. And I think really eventually we're going to be either Lot or Abe. That's where we're going to go with life. We're either going to be a lot who's just kind of fogged out, blinded to it all, or we're going to be an Abe that says, I'm fighting this war, all right? So we're going to look at these two guys. Wednesday, we'll do a lot more kind of work in this chapter, but now we're just going to do a quick kind of flyover of what led to Lot being sucked in as a captive and what Abe did right to fight this war. Are you ready? Verse 8, chapter 14. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedolaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Alassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. Think La Brea tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy 
took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's father, brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Lot, taken captive by this enemy army. If you don't remember who Lot is, Lot is the spoiled kind of nephew of Abram. So in chapter 13, Abram says, we've got to go, choose your land, I'll take the leftovers. Lot chooses the best land. He chooses the Willamette Valley. And so Abram has to like live in Burns, Oregon, right? Sorry if you live in Burns, Oregon. Like literally, I'm sorry if you've lived in Burns, Oregon. (laughs) So that's kind of what happens. So he's down in this area. And then when the battle comes, he's taken away. He's taken captive. And his life actually gives us a warning about here's, here's how to avoid being taken captive by an enemy. So there's a couple things he did wrong. Number one, he made a series of terrible choices. So if you know his story in chapter 13, what happens is Lot looks down at Sodom. He's like, wow, that looks nice. Then he chose to live near Sodom. He kind of set up his tent close to Sodom. And then his tent's like kind of looking at Sodom. So he's kind of checking out, whoa, what's happening in there? That's interesting. And then chapter 14, verse 12 tells us, he was dwelling in Sodom. It's a series of choices. Boy, I like that down there. I'm just going to move close to it. I'm not going to go in there. Boy, that looks really intriguing in there. Pretty soon he's sucked into it, right? Be careful. Be careful of what you're opening your tent to. Be careful of what you're pointing your tent towards, right? Let me read for you just a text that to me directs us as believers how we're supposed to walk out daily life. It's Ephesians chapter five. I'll just read it for you. I won't make any comments on it. Ephesians five, beginning in verse five. For you may be sure of this. I like texts like that. You can bank on this. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Interesting. We are in an entertainment society now. So it used to be a couple decades ago, in the evening, you'd go for a walk with your family or you might play a game or you'd do something. Now in the evening, what we do culturally is Netflix, 
uh, Amazon Prime, whatever, Redbox. That's what we do as a culture. I'm not going to say that's right or wrong, but I will say this. Be careful what you're being entertained by. Verse 12 of Ephesians 5 says it's a shame even to talk about some of that stuff. Be careful. Because what I am entertained by, pretty soon I'll entertain buying into. That's what happened with Lot. I kind of like it down there. I'm going to move close to it. I'm going to watch this. Pretty soon he's in it. What I'm entertained by, pretty soon I will entertain buying into. Be so careful. It's always a series of small, subtle choices that make us end up living in Sodom and taken captive by the enemy. You look, you liked it, you move close to it, you open your tent to it, pretty soon you're in it, right? I've never spoken with a young man addicted to drugs who said, bro, I started out by intravenously injecting heroin. I've not met that kid. No, man, I started out by you know, chewing some tobacco, then I smoked some pot, and then I tried some mushrooms and LSD, and then pretty soon I was doing heroin, right? It's a series of choices. I've never met a guy who's like, man, I'm hooked on hardcore porn. I started with hardcore porn. No. Man, I was watching this great series. It had such a great plot. Yeah, there was this other side to it. It started intriguing me because it's like part of the plot, but, uh, right? And then pretty soon. No one begins by embezzling $50 billion like Bernie Madoff. It begins... By stealing a little, a little time, a little supplies, a little cash laying around. That's how it begins. It's just like Lot. I like it down there. I want to move a little close to it. And pretty soon I'm in it and I'm stuck in it. So the New Testament over and over says this, wake up. Romans 13, 11, wake up. Stop sleeping. Wake up. Look around you. Look out. This is going to take you down. This life is not a playground. This life is a battleground. It started that way in Genesis chapter one. Adam and Eve were built for a battle. Hey, there's an enemy, subdue him. In the garden, in perfection, subdue him. Well, who was that? Chapter three, we learn who it is. Oh, it's the serpent. We have a real enemy. And so Peter puts it like this. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your enemy is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Learn the lesson from Lot. What are you pointing your tent at? What's the opening of your tent allowing in? Be careful of that because it's subtle. It begins that way. So he made some terrible choices. Number two, he had a terrible crew. So back in chapter 13, it's like God warned him. It's verse 12. When he chooses Sodom, it's right after that. It's the men of Sodom were wicked sinners against Yahweh. I'm warning you, bro. You're going down there. No, I'm just going to be near it. Yeah, I know they're wicked sinners. I got it, God. But, but don't worry about me. Oh, your crew is so important. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. What I'm hanging with is what I'm going to be doing. It's a theme in the Bible. So I read this study, and it was, it's, it's right, I think, that parents, when you have teenagers, you no longer affect their behavior. Like you had your time, and about 9, 10, they just start to be like, you're not cool anymore. And by 13, 14, they're like, forget you. 
right? You no longer affect their behavior. Guess who is the primary effector of a teenager's behavior? Their friends. That's what this study said. The number one effector of a child's behavior is the crew they hang out with. Like, I've seen it. Like, I've sent my kids to, like, somebody's house, and they come back, and I'm like, what in the world? You're acting just like your friend. Like, you're say, you talk the same way. How is this possible? Did you get cloned? Right? There's something. They're like sponges. They suck it up. So I now realize, you know, I'm not really going to affect my teenager's behavior, but you know what I can control? Who they hang out with. And I'll be careful about that. Hey, you can invite them over to our house, but you're not going over there. Because I'm going to be careful about the crew my kids hang out with. Young adults, you know. You know homes, you know places you should not be. Because you know what happens there. Don't go there. Old people like me, who am I hanging out with? Because my crew is going to direct my behavior. So a bunch of terrible choices, has a terrible crew, and then it just tells us, verse 12, he was taken captive by the enemy. He's grabbed up, taken captive, and off he goes. Bummer. He, his wife, his two daughters, everything that they own. Man, that's a bummer. Sat and listened to so many people with bummers because they've acted like a lot. And when I read this, I thought, okay, 21st century, we're probably not that worried about a confederacy of five kings coming down into Grant's Pass and taking us up to Portland or something. Probably not that worried about that. So what does this have to do with us today? What's the motive behind this? Like, I'm always wanting to find out, what's the deep drive that causes these people that I talk with to head in directions that are Sodom-like? Like, like wh why are they going there? Why do they want to party? Why do they want to drink? Why do they want to do that stuff? Why is it? Almost always when I ask questions, because my counseling is mostly questions, it's, it just seems so much fun. I, it seemed like they're having just a blast over there. It's about the, the drive underneath it, why young people make choices like this, why older people make choices like this is, I want to have fun. I want to enjoy life. Pleasure, right? That's fundamentally it. And we start thinking about the church. When you think about church, are, are the first words that come to your mind like pleasure and enjoyment? Probably not. Those aren't probably the first words that come to mind. Have you ever watched the show The Simpsons? Me either. I hate it. So one of the show, one of the episodes, Homer Simpson is talking to Ned Flanders. You know who Ned Flanders is? The hyper-fundamentalist Christian guy that lives next to Homer Simpson. And he's like, uh, Ned, where have you been for the last week? And Ned Flanders, this hyper-fundamentalist Christian, responds by saying, I've been away at a Christian retreat learning how to be more judgmental. I just cracked up. I've been to that retreat. <clears throat> That's how the church is looked at. Fundamentalist, judgmental. And people aren't saying church, pleasure, enjoyment. And I think it's wrong. I think the church has to really work hard at recovering enjoyment and pleasure as gifts from Jesus. Because you read the gospels, Jesus enjoyed himself. He was the life of the party, wasn't he? He was constantly being invited to parties. Hey, dude, come to my party. Probably because party number one, John chapter two, he turns a bunch of water into wine. They're like, dude, you're good. Come to my party, man. 
I could totally use you here. I know there's an argument, it wasn't wine, it was grape juice. Well, I don't know about that. I think it was wine. When it calls it wine, it could have used the word grape juice, it uses the word wine. So there's this like disconnect, like, oh no, pleasure, enjoyment, can't do that. I think we have to recover those things. Jesus did, and more than Jesus. I think the Old Testament is actually, a, God's saying, I want you guys to have a great time. You read Exodus 23, 14, it's actually repeated over and over in the Bible, where God says this three times a year, Israel, my kids, I want you to come together, pack everything up. You come down to the city that I choose, Jerusalem. You come there and you feast and you party. It's in the law, right? When we think of the law, we think, bummer. No way. Go down and party. It's like God saying, either you party or I'm going to kill you, right? Get down there and enjoy yourself. It's the law. I'm going to make you do it. We need more of that. So I'm reading through the Bible. I hope you guys are too. And I just read Nehemiah. Listen to this. This just cracked me up because we, I think the church needs this message. Listen to what Nehemiah says. It's Nehemiah 8, verse 8. And if you know, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is phenomenal. But now they're, they're applying God's word to God's people. So here's what happens. It's Nehemiah 8, 8. They read from the book, from the law of God. That's the first five books of the Bible clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, right? Church. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. When you hear that, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. What do you think about holy? puritanical bummer, right? Like, oh, holy. I must sit and think holy thoughts. No, listen to their definition of holy. This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So their response is they hear God's word and they're like, oh, somber. Um, better be really serious right now. Better weep and cry. Oh no. Nehemiah and Ezra are like wrong reaction. Listen to what they say. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. How different is that? It's a holy day. So what does that mean? Go be happy. Go party, right? Eat the fat. You know what that means in the Hebrew? Eat a bowl of Briar's natural vanilla. Right? Drink the sweet wine. Drink a can of fermented sugar, essentially. Right? Give gifts to each other. Laugh. Do that. Why? Celebrate when they understood the real sense of God's word. Because God wants you to enjoy life. We got to recover that. Like, here's a thought for you. This summer, throw a block party. Just get together, get some of your neighbors, and just, just have a great time. Rent, go to Big Air, get some, you know, of their jump up houses. Just throw a block party. And don't 
exposit the book of Romans there. Like, hold on, every kid, every kid, stop jumping. I must teach you the book of Romans. Don't say to your neighbor who's an unbeliever, who's like, bro, this is a lot of fun, man. Why are we doing this? Don't say, well, you know, I wanted to have a fun time with you before you burn in hell for eternity. Like, don't say that. Just say, hey, man, Jesus is so good to me, and I love life so much. He's the king of pleasure and enjoyment. I thought, let's, let's honor our king. Let's make this a holy day, Nehemiah chapter 8. We need more of that because I think the church has forgotten. We've become, verse 9, grieving and somber when Nehemiah and Ezra are like, are you kidding me? We've been rescued. We've been brought back into our right city. God is our God. Are you kidding me? This is a holy day celebrate it, right? I think that's the core drive that's leading people to Sodom. We need to say, wait a second. That's a gift from Jesus. Let's use it, all right? So you got Lot, fogged by war, terrible choices, terrible crew, going the wrong direction. We need sanctified celebration because when you're full on Jesus, a a lot of the world's junk loses, loses its ability to have any influence on you, all right? Now we get Abe. Abe is very different. This is what he does. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and they defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Again, I'll repeat Abram, it's not his sin that sucks him into this battle. It's Lot. Very often, that's the way things are. It's other people that suck us in to this battle, right? So here's what he does right. He has a crew. First, his crew, look at verse 13. He's living by this guy named Mamre, his brother Eshcol, and Aner. And these are allies, these are buddies of Abram. Verse 24 tells us, I have taken nothing, but I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. These three guys, neighbors of Abram, when Abram needs help, they come. No problem. And this is not moving somebody on half a Saturday. This is rally your forces, risk your life, go all the way up north of Damascus. That would be like you and me saying, I, got, bro, I need three guys to go with me to... Washington, D.C. You gotta take up a couple weeks from work, right? That's what these guys do. It's unbelievable, right? Now, why? I think Abram was a really good neighbor. I think Abram was a generous kind of guy that makes these really good friends and they're so united with him. We're like, dude, we'll go anywhere. We'll help you. I know it's your spoiled nephew named Lot. No problem. If you want us to go, we're with you. Do you have three men like that? Three ladies like that? That if, if, if things got really bad for you, and you needed to call at midnight to go make a run somewhere to save somebody, that they would say, I'll drop everything. 100%. I'll do that for you. Do we have three guys like that? If you had to make a list right now, 
Could you name three people that you said they would 100% have my back and they would do that for me? If you don't, invest. Because there'll come a time when you need that. We have community groups. That's a great way to kind of bridge some of those gaps. Start making those kind of relationships where, hey, you get hearts knit together. Sign up for one. He has this crew of friends that drop everything for him to go rescue Lot with him. But secondly, he has fighters. Notice, he has 318 trained men that were born in his house that go in pursuit. He doesn't have just friends. He has trained fighters. Notice it's past tense. It wasn't Abram going, oh no, boy, I gotta train up some people right now. They were already battle ready. They were trained. I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again probably as well. But if you had to run a marathon right now, so right now you get your cell phone goes off and you need to run 26.2 miles to go save your son or your daughter or someone really important to you. Could you get up, run out those doors in your penny loafers and run a marathon? The majority of us would say, oh, no way. What if you were given six months to train? Could you run a marathon? I think every one of us could. Did you read about Ed Whitlock just recently? The first 85-year-old man to run a marathon in under four hours? It's brilliant. So I'm reading the article on him, and I, uh, the first picture that comes up about Ed Whitlock is, uh, it, it's this picture of him crossing the finish line, and he's wearing gear, it looks like, from the 1980s. Like, he's just classic. And the article said this, he refuses to stretch and he wears 15-year-old shoes, right? And the, he's crossing the finish line, beating this guy who looks like he's like a 30, maybe 25-year-old gym rat who's wearing 10 grand in equipment. And, and Ed Whitlock's just like, just head up, totally happy. The 30-year-old dude's just going like, oh, barely crossing the finish line. I'm like, that guy's never gonna live that down. He'll always be known as the dude that got passed by the 85-year-old. Training, yeah, you could do it. These guys are ready, they're trained. They know what to do. Are we, are we battle ready? Because this stuff's gonna come at you. Are we ready for the battle? Do we know that life is not a playground, it's a battleground? Do we know, the New Testament says, do not be ignorant of the devil's devices. Be aware of how he works. If you have to deal with somebody who is suicidal, would you know what to do? Depressed, would you know what to do? Addicted to porn, addicted to drugs, would you know what to do? Someone who's battling for their marriage, would you know what to do? Like, these are common problems, things I deal with every single week. Would you know what to do? I hope so. There's training that needs to take place. There's also training that needs to take place in me. Am I ready? Not just to give out, but am I ready? So the Bible says this, like, um, that how shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed to the word of God. That there's a power in knowing God's word. That areas that I'm weak, I should have a Bible verse for that. Jesus, when the enemy attacks him in Matthew 4, three times, what does he do? It is written. Same equipment you and I have, if we'll use it. It is written. It is written over and over and over again. Jesus goes to this, his disciples who cannot 
cannot cast a demon out of this boy. And he casts it out. And they say, why, why can't we cast out that demon? And Jesus says, because this one doesn't come out but by prayer. And he's not saying prayer right then. It's a life of prayer. Am I prayed up? Do I Sabbath? Over and over, studies are showing this. You fail in ways you don't want to fail when you're tired, right? It's not in the morning when you're like happy and everything's great. It's in the evening when you want your kid to go to bed and you're like, get in your bed. And you lose it. Why? Because you're tired and you're depleted. Are we Sabbathing right? Are we resting so that our minds are ah, being renewed and filled and empowered? Are we Sabbathing? Are we celebrating? Do we ever fast? Isaiah 58, how do you break these bonds? How do you break these chains? You fast. By saying no physically, it often gives you strength spiritually or emotionally or mentally. They just transfer over. By you being able to say no to that appetite, you can say no to these other appetites. Like there's all kinds of being battle. Do we ever really concentrate and think through 2 Corinthians chapter 10? These are the weapons you've been given. Do we ever look at the armor in Ephesians chapter six and say, am I putting this stuff on? Do I understand what each of these pieces mean? Matt, that's hard. Right, it is. Training's hard. But if you study Roman history, Rome fell in the fifth century. Part of the problem was this. In the outer kind of uh, fortress parts that they're defending against the crazies, what happened with the soldier was this. They started to say, man, this armor's so heavy. Do I have to wear this helmet anymore? It's kind of heavy. Got this neck problem, I'll take it off. You know, this breastplate, it's, it's just, it's weighing me down. Okay, take it off. So they stopped wearing their armor. So when the hordes came in and the Mongols came in, then they were unprepared and they didn't have time to put on their armor and they were taken out. Are we battle ready? He had 318 trained men ready for action. I love that. But here's my favorite part. Abram hears this dude, hey, Lot, your nephew has been taken captive. And what does Abram do? Ah, stupid moron. I warned him. I told him if he moves down there that this is going to happen to him. Serves him right. He made his bed. He's sleeping in it. This is the consequences of your actions. Come on. Does Abram do any of those things? No. He acts. Okay. Rally the forces. Let's go. How do we respond when we hear something, when we see something? How do we respond? Because each of us will respond in different ways. The best illustration I have of this and it's one that I've thought through in my life. It's from a guy, his name is Josh Bossard, good friend of mine. Spent a year on the mission field with him in Vanuatu. And he tells this story, he said it was revolutionary for him because it caused him to evaluate from that point on how he responded to situations. He's 18, ski bomb. He and three friends move up to Bend. They get a house up there. They're skiing all the time. Well, one of their youth pastors from Medford decides he's gonna pay him a visit. But he dresses up as a bug exterminator with this backpack sprayer on. So he comes to their house, he knocks on the door, he's got a mask on, he, he's all in, you know, all the equipment. The, the, one of the guys, all four are there, one of the guys opens the door and this youth pastor looking like a bug exterminator in the mask just pushes by him and says, I'm here to spray for the brown recluse spider and just starts spraying this white anthrax looking powder everywhere. 
And so now you got all four guys like, uh, okay. So Josh said he was actually in the kitchen making a sandwich and he like turned around and he said he was like watching a TV show. He goes, I was so like distant and, and uh, separate from it. I was just like, huh, watching it all take place. He goes, I never want to do that again. So that was his reaction. The second roommate was watching TV. He just turned, kind of looked at this, went back to watching his TV. Hmm, it's a good show. All right. The guy who opened the door starts following around Mr. Bug Exterminator, just nailing him with questions. Like, what's the name of my landlord, bro? Where's the, like trying to figure out what is this dude's deal? So he's following him. The fourth guy, a man, a few words, but much action, picked up a six foot long aluminum fly rod case and starts following the other two guys around the room. So he's just spraying away. There's like this white cloud now just enveloping the whole place. And finally, question dude is like, hey man, what is that stuff you're spraying? Is it dangerous? And so the guy stops, he goes, no, it's not dangerous. He's like, then why are you wearing a gas mask, man? <laughs> so he turns around with that thing and just sprays questioner in the face with white anthrax powder. So he's like, ah, you know, like gouging his eyes out. And Mr. Flyrod dude just says, that's it. And just cracks him, knocks him to the ground, starts beating him until he breaks the fly rod in half right? Or the flower case in half. At that point, youth pastor rips off his mask. Stop! Ah, right? Chiropractor bills on you, man. Who would you be? Who are you going to be? Making a sandwich? Hmm. TV? I've been all of them, man. Watching TV, Charity's like, ah. Don't you know what your son's doing? I have a son? When? What? <laughs> Abraham acts. He hears this information. Doesn't blame Lot, who made a bunch of poor choices. Hanging out the poor crew. Just says, he needs to be rescued. He needs to be rescued. I'm going to rescue him. I think training and action go hand in hand. That if you're trained but we never act, you get tired of training. You become like those Roman soldiers. Why am I wearing this now? Why am I in church on Sunday? Why am I going, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Like you got to have both. It's like in Israel, there's two bodies of water. One of them is called the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River dumps into it and comes out of it. It's got an inlet and outlet. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. Fruitful. It's awesome. The other one is the Dead Sea. It just has the Jordan River dumping into it. And then it just ends there and it's dead. It's like a nuclear blast zone because it has no outlet. If, if, if you never have mission, if you never give out, if you're never rescuing people, then you're gonna be like, why do I have all this equipment? Why am I training? They go hand in hand. Are we trained and will we act? That's what Abram shows us. I'll fight. I found this. The more I got involved in ministry, the more I realized I needed more training. That's why I went back to seminary. Like, I gotta get more training. Why? Because I'm dealing with people with addiction and sexual problems and sexuality issues and gender questions. I'm like, I gotta get more training, my goodness. Why? Because I was being depleted. The, the, the lake was going down. I need to fill back up. They go hand in hand. I, mean, I don't know how to get trained. Well, there's all kinds of ways. Mondays for ladies. We got wild coming up for men. Sign up for wild. Man, it's three days. We'll celebrate there. We'll laugh there. We'll have a great time there. We'll also get trained there. Just start 
being around. Ask people questions. I'm always asking people that I think know a little bit more than me, how do you do that? How'd you deal with that? Because I want to be trained. I want to be always on my game, trained. Well, Matt, why should I? That seems so inconvenient. Here's what I've noticed about love. Love is inconvenient, isn't it? Because people you love, lots, make really stupid choices. They go in really dumb directions. And if you really love them, your heart breaks for them. And it's inconvenient. It will inconvenience you. It'll take your time. It'll suck your virtue. It'll take everything out of you. Absolutely. But isn't that what Jesus did for us? His love for us was not convenient. It wasn't convenient to be nailed to a cross and slaughtered. It wasn't convenient. It was loving, though. I pray Edgewater has a bunch of Abrams with flight rod cases walking around looking for the enemy. I want to take out the enemy. I want to rescue lots. I bet you every single one of us, if we thought for a little bit, would say, I know a lot. I know a nephew, brother, dad, mom, uncle, friend, good friend, who's gone the way of Lot, I know. What if we said, I'm gonna try to rescue them. I'm gonna call them today. I'm gonna write to them. I'm gonna drive and visit them because they're worth it. But Matt, I don't know what to say. You just start out by saying, I love you. I love you. And I don't like what's happening to you. Do you like what's happening to you? I've never met somebody in the midst of the enemy's possession who've said, I love what I'm doing right now. I love being on heroin. Just love it. It's awesome. I've never met that person yet. They know it. They're just struggling. And Galatians 6.1 says that you that are spiritual come alongside those that are struggling and bear their burden for a while. It will burden you. It will weigh you down. But you say they're worth it because love is inconvenient. And ultimately, that's what Jesus did for us inconvenienced himself to rescue me from my bad choices and my bad crew and my stupidity. And God used my mom, who never gave up on me, and a good friend, because if you know my story, there was a period of time when I came out of college because of some classes I took where I just, I was checked out of the faith. And there was a friend who did not give up on me. I can still remember in my mind sitting at 1111 Southwest Foundry on the porch having conversation after conversation with conversation with him. And a lot of times he just said, bro, I don't know. I don't know the answers to those things. But I know this, that Jesus has rescued me and changed me. And he can do the same for you. And one day it was like the light just went on. That's it. Totally, that's it. He didn't give up on me. Do you have a lot that needs to be rescued? I pray that we're fighters. If we went from here and the 1,700 or so that come here on a Sunday, if each of us contacted a lot, how much would Grant's Pass be changed? A lot. A lot. So Jesus, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for Abram, this example of faith, who had friends who were Canaanites, and he was so close with them and so allied with them that their hearts were knit to him and they heard his call and they rescued Lot. Thinking that he trained men knowing the world he lived in was dangerous. Thank you for rescuing me 
for using people to do that work. I pray as we partake in the divine rescue mission, as we eat and drink, I pray that we'd both be prepared and equipped and alerted of lots who need to be rescued. I pray for any in here who, like I've done, have begun to move their tent closer and closer to danger. I pray that the lesson of Lot would awaken us to the wiles of the enemy who subtly plays us into his realm and then beats us. I pray today that your body and your blood would rescue again and keep us from moving towards sin and Sodom. I pray that we'd go from here celebrating that we would be kings and queens of enjoyment and pleasure, sanctified enjoyment, just like you, sanctified pleasure, sanctified laughter, that we would be overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance, that those would be the words that describe Edgewater Christian Fellowship. So do a good work, and may we respond. I pray this in your name.